Nicodemus is a complicated character, and his conversation with Jesus in John chapter 3 gives several clues about his spiritual condition. Today, we'll be rethinking what you thought you already knew about this man. And by the time we're done, we might even change the color of some of the letters in your Bible. Welcome to episode 6, The Curious Case of Nick at Night, part 2. In the last episode, we started to look at this character of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 specifically. We also know that he shows up a little bit later in John's gospel, and that gives us more information about who he is. But what we started to look at was, are there any clues given in chapter 3 specifically about the character of this gentleman, the spiritual condition of who he is. So we're just going to unpack a little bit more about that today. There's some significant things that we did not talk about in the last episode that are going to hopefully change your perspective on how you read this particular chapter and some conclusions that may lead you to. So going to be bringing a couple different articles in and interacting with them on today's episode. The first one is written by Craig L. Blomberg. He is an American New Testament scholar, currently a distinguished professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary in Colorado. He's been there since 1986. His area of academic expertise is the New Testament. And the article that we're going to be interacting with to begin today's podcast is called The Globalization of Biblical Interpretation with a Subtext of a Test Case from John 3 and 4. So that's from the Bulletin for Biblical Research, Volume 5, that was back in 1995. We're not going to talk about the larger article. We're just going to focus in on his characterization of Nicodemus. And he says, a long history of Christian interpretation of Nicodemus assumes that he eventually became a full-fledged disciple. Already in the first centuries of the Common Era, legends developed about the additional exploits of Nicodemus the Christian. To be sure, it is important to recall that he appears in the fourth gospel, not only in chapter 3, but again in 7:45 through 52 arguing for due process of law to be applied to Jesus, and in 19.38-42 through 42, as an aside to Joseph of Arimathea. And he mentions that in the latter, that Nicodemus is explicitly called a secret disciple. Blomberg goes on to say in John 3, 1 through 15, it is pointed out that he demonstrates an unusual openness to Jesus for a Pharisee. Contemporary redaction criticism consistently characterizes Nicodemus as symbolizing the crypto-Christians of the Johannine community in a situation of openness before the claims of Christ. It's kind of a complicated last sentence there. He's basically saying that a lot of people that study Nicodemus see him as a secret Christian, one typical of that theme in John's writings. But Blomberg is going to be contrary to that idea, and he's going to give us several reasons in this article as to why we should consider Nicodemus as not a believer. And if you listen to the last episode, my argument is that we should be recognizing Nicodemus as a believer. I think we've got several clues, some that we talked about in the last episode, more that we'll talk about today. But before jumping in just into my perspective and the way I'm reading Nicodemus right now, I thought I'd bring up some of these things that Blomberg points out uh, regarding why we might consider Nicodemus in a negative light. He gives seven reasons why one might consider a negative view of Nicodemus from a spiritual standpoint. 
And we're not going to go through all seven of them, but I thought I'd mention a few of them here. His first one, really interesting, is one we covered in the last episode. It's just that idea of, in John chapter 3, verse 1, as Nicodemus is being introduced, it says, now there was a man. And he points out, as we did in the last episode, that that illustration of Nicodemus, now there was a man, ties back into that idea of men in the end of chapter 2, that saw the works of Jesus and came to faith in seeing those signs. He considers that, as many do, a negative characteristic, because people argue that if you have to see a sign from Jesus, that that faith isn't sufficient. My conclusion from last week was that given the context of Jesus coming into the light for the first time, there would have been people looking for the Messiah character. They would have expected him to speak God's words and to do God's work. And for a group of people to see a miracle coming from Jesus and conclude that he was sent from God, that's huge in the original first century context. And I argue that those people that are looking for Messiah and accepting Jesus pretty quickly after seeing him and hearing him, those people are already saved. Those people are saved coming out of the Old Testament tradition and faith of an expected Messiah. And that they would have to transfer their faith from the promise of a Messiah to the actual person of the Messiah when Jesus started showing himself. And that's what we're seeing here. That's my argument for what we're seeing in Nicodemus. But Blomberg considers that in the list of negative things. His second point is that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. The rather unrelentingly negative portrait of Jewish leaders in John is well known, he says. Pharisees from Jerusalem have already appeared in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, and they are skeptics of John the Baptist's ministry and the more immediate episode of the temple cleansing in 2, 12 through 25 in the last chapter. So Blomberg is arguing that Nicodemus is presented as a Pharisee, and this will be highly important in the further discussion that we have today. Nicodemus is presented as a Pharisee. My argument's going to be by the end of this that Nicodemus is a believer in a largely unbelieving group of Pharisees. And I think that'll play out as we get into the grammar of the dialogue that he has with Jesus. This is just one more point that Blomberg adds to the list of why we should see him as a negative character. Number three, Nicodemus comes by night. Whatever possible historical reasons uh, for either fear or by, for secrecy or convenience, which may have prompted this timing, John surely sees it as symbolic of Nicodemus's spiritual darkness. So again, <laughs> this, this is what you're going to see in commentaries, is all of these things. He's a Pharisee. He's a man coming out of you know the statement at the end of chapter two. He comes at night. He's timid in character. He doesn't have a developed faith is the argument. And here, Blomberg says, John surely sees it as symbolic, this night gesture, as symbolic of Nicodemus's spiritual darkness. And again, I can just reframe that a little bit for you. The way I'm reading Nicodemus coming at night is Jerusalem is an incredibly dark town. It's interesting in the birth accounts in one of the other gospels, we've got wise men coming from the east and they see a star and then they get to Jerusalem where Herod is and they've lost the star. It's a dark town. And as soon as they leave Jerusalem and head towards Bethlehem, they get the star open again. So this light-dark motif for Jerusalem as a dark place is throughout the Gospels. Blomberg argues that Nicodemus is coming by night because he's a part of that. 
And I'm just going to reframe that a tad and say that Nicodemus is a believer in a very dark situation. So the fact that he's coming by night definitely plays into the light-dark motif, but it doesn't necessarily define who he is as a person. It just defines the location in which he lives. The next point that Blomberg makes, Nicodemus cannot bring himself to address Jesus as anything more than rabbi, which is a teacher, and that he's a teacher from God. And he points out in other places in John's gospel that this is little more than a polite form of address, and teacher is a noticeably deficient way of addressing Jesus. And I would agree, if you've got the whole purview of the whole New Testament— From our perspective, rabbi seems very deficient in discussing who Jesus is. But let's think about when Nicodemus is coming. This seems to be fairly early on, although the chronology in John may not always be able to be trusted because he flips some things and puts them out of order for stylistic reasons. But assuming that Nicodemus is coming early, this is a very brave statement, not just a polite, inadequate description of who Jesus is. This is a brave statement. You are a teacher. The whole term rabbi had a context that we don't even fully understand. To be called a rabbi, you had to fit into a certain category. And as of this point, Jesus was not a trained rabbi. And so for a Pharisee to come to Jesus and address him as rabbi when Jesus was not a trained rabbi, I could reframe that statement very easily into a statement of faith that Nicodemus is giving. As Blomberg continues, one of his other points is that Nicodemus's dependence on signs not only ties back with chapter 2, 23 through 25, but with John's more pervasive theme of belief based on signs as being less than adequate foundation for faith. Uh, He's just saying the whole fact that Nicodemus is so dependent upon seeing these signs for his faith is just another checkbox in the non-believer side of Nicodemus. I would just argue the point, why was Jesus even doing miracles if anybody coming to faith in him by seeing a miracle was going to have an inadequate faith? There'd be no reason to do miracles at all. Why didn't he just speak? And then it could be argued that if your faith is only based on what Jesus said, it's an inadequate faith. (laughs) So lots of complications, lots of discussion out there in the theological stratosphere. I'll let you go ahead and uh, decipher some of those. He says that Nicodemus remains an ambivalent character. But what is important for his study, his paper that he's writing, is the significance of this ambivalence. He says, a person with one foot in the world of belief and one in the world of disbelief, those people remain outside the kingdom. And that's kind of the purview of his paper and the point that he's trying to make. And contrary to that, I would argue that a person in the first century with one foot in the world of belief and one foot in the world of disbelief doesn't remain outside the kingdom, but very likely should be considered inside the kingdom. And it's a kingdom that continues from Old Testament times through this transitional period where Jesus is developing his ministry and displaying who he is. And for many believers, they often found themselves as people of faith trapped in situations of disbelief. I'd like to go back and re-examine in more detail the discussion and the dialogue that Jesus has with Nicodemus here in John chapter 3. So we're going to begin in John 3, 3. And specifically, what I'm going to be focusing on, I 
don't remember if I've mentioned this in the past, but I'm a bit of an English scholar. I did teach junior high English for three years up in Puyallup, Washington. And at the junior high level, I often didn't get into the intricacies of the English language, but I did teach pronouns. And one of the things I remember specifically about teaching pronouns was that there are singular U's and plural U's. And in English, they're spelled the exact same way, U. And it's context in our language that gives us the reason to understand or the ability to understand whether we're talking about you all as a plural you or you as a singular you referring just to one person. Fortunately, in biblical Greek, you have two different words, one for singular you, one for plural you. So the ambiguity is completely taken out. And the problem is when we brought John chapter 3 into the English translation, we lost some clarity. So in this next section, I'm just going to be focusing mostly on the word you in the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, because about half the time, those are singular yous, and about half the time, they're plural yous. And I guarantee you, unless you've heard this before, when you read John chapter 3, you're reading them as singular yous all the way through, and that is greatly affecting your view of Nicodemus's spiritual condition. Here, let's get started. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. That's a singular you. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I'm saying this specifically to you. Unless one, he doesn't use you there, by the way. He says, unless someone is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's just a general statement about how people get saved. He's not saying anything about Nicodemus specifically other than I'm giving you this spiritual nugget of knowledge. The next time we see a you is in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, singular, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and that's what we commented in the last episode, could also be viewed as water in the wind, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. If you've got the text in front of you, we'd skip down to verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, just if you're reading the, both of those as singular use said directly to Nicodemus, you would have to come to the conclusion that this is not a believer in God, not someone who has been born from above. But in verse 7, it says, Do not be amazed that I said to singular you, Nicodemus, you all must be born again. And this is obvious in the Greek, and it's unfortunately not obvious in the English. I'm going to get some help right now from a gentleman by the name of Bill Mounts. Bill's the founder and president of biblicaltraining.org. Biblicaltraining.org has over 100 classes on Bible teaching, all the way from basics up to a seminary level, taught by a number of different highly regarded professors. And Bill Mounts is the founder and president of that. And he's also written the best-selling Biblical Greek textbook, Basics of Biblical Greek. And that's how I was first introduced to Bill Mounts. Uh, back in my master's program, I spent many a night marking up and tearing out pages of that book in my frustration of the Greek language. I'm going to be actually uh, commenting and reading to you from one of his blog posts on his website, billmounts.com. And this particular blog post is from Saturday, September 21st, 2019. And the title of the blog is, You Do Not Receive Our Testimony, John 3.11. So I'm just going to be interacting with this because it's mounts that 
highlights this idea of singular and plural use that I've just introduced, and he brings some clarity to it. Mouse begins his blog post, I have always had a bit of a soft spot in my heart for Nicodemus. Jesus is the new kid on the block, the new radical. He is already stirring up problems for the religious establishment, and Nicodemus takes a pretty big risk. Mounts goes on to say, What apparently drove Nicodemus was that while Jesus seemed to be radical, Nicodemus cannot avoid the obvious fact of Jesus' miracles and the implication that Jesus must, therefore, be from God. But there is more to the story than that, and it is seen in the alternating between singular and plural, a grammatical nicety that comes into English only with difficulty. The discussion continues in the singular until verse 7, when Jesus says, Do not marvel that I say to you, singular, it is necessary for you, plural, to be born again. Mounts asks the question, what's going on? And he answers his own question by saying, Nicodemus came as a representative of Pharisaical Judaism, and Jesus is returning to that starting point. And let me just break in here because Mounts skips from verse 7 down to the criticism that Jesus gives in verse 10. And in his short blog post, he hasn't dealt with everything. So uh, I'm just going to interject here because he skips over verse 8. Verse 8 is what I see as kind of a linchpin. And let's remind ourselves, verse 7, don't be amazed, Nicodemus, that I said to you individually that you all must be born again. And the way we should hear that is, Nicodemus, you individual, you need to understand that the group of Pharisees in which you are here representing, any individual's membership in that group does not stamp their ticket into heaven. And then verse 8, and listen to this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. That's not a you all. That's not a plural you. The wind blows where it wishes, and you, Nicodemus, hear the sound of it. And then listen to this. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you hear the wind blow, even though you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And that is the spiritual condition of everyone who is born of the wind. I think verse 8 is a strong argument to suggest that we should be seeing Nicodemus as a believer in a largely unbelieving group of Pharisees. And it's based on that singular you there. Let's switch back into Mounce's article now because he brings a lot of clarity to the singular and plural use in the rest of the dialogue here. Mount says, and finally in verse 11, Jesus says, very truly I say to you, singular, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. That's from the TNIV The use of people there is their way of indicating the pronoun you is plural. Others do it with footnotes, like in the ESV. Mount says, I find the interchange between singular and plural interesting and unfortunately is hard to bring into the English. And I would agree that it's difficult to see that in the English, but if you can see which yous are plural and which ones are singular, it becomes more obvious that Jesus is having two separate discussions with Nicodemus. One with Nicodemus, the believing individual, and one with Nicodemus, the representative of a largely unbelieving population of Pharisees. Let me give you some examples. Verse 12, they're all plural yous. If I told you all earthly things and you all do not believe, 
how will you all believe if I tell you all heavenly things? You might be tempted to have read that in the past as Jesus saying to Nicodemus the individual, if I told you, Nicodemus, earthly things, and you, Nicodemus, do not believe, how will you, Nicodemus, believe if I tell you, Nicodemus, heavenly things? But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's speaking to Nicodemus, but he's addressing Nicodemus as a part of a larger group, and it does not require us to see Nicodemus as an unbeliever, as many people have assumed. The singular and plural use in the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus opens up a brand new interpretation and understanding of who Nicodemus is. And I argue that it encourages us to see Nicodemus as coming in to the conversation as a believer already in the promises of the Old Testament. He's an outlier for sure in a group of largely unbelieving Pharisees. But we know from other parts of Scripture that there were other Pharisees that were secret believers. And I'm just going to suggest that they were already believers before they met Jesus. And when they saw him, they couldn't help but recognize him for who he was as opposed to the cohorts who largely rejected Jesus upon first glance. There's one more point that Mount speaks to in his blog that I think is worthy of mention here, and it'll round out nicely because it's something I teach on often when I'm in John chapter 3. Mount says, but there is something else. Critical scholarship looks at the move from dialogue to monologue, especially from verse 16 on, as an indication that the monologue is a creation of John's and it never happened. In other words, Jesus never said John 3.16. And for many reasons, Mounts does not accept that conclusion. So if you look at the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, It begins at the beginning of the chapter, and it continues down, and there's some debate as to whether it might uh, end at the end of verse, let's say, 13, which is kind of a radical thought, because if you've got a red-letter edition of your Bible, most every red-letter edition carries the red letters all the way down through verse 21. A lot of people are seeing that not as a quote of Jesus, but as a commentary of John the author at that point. So John stops quoting Jesus possibly there in verse 13, begins his commentary then in 14. So I couldn't get out of John chapter 3 without specifically talking about John 3.16, could I? It's uh, the most recognized verse in the whole of the New Testament. So let's just, if, if you're not familiar with it, let me just read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so, you know, Mounts would say that this is still Jesus saying these words. Uh, others would argue, and I think I'm probably in the camp, that this is likely John, the author, giving us some commentary here. It can be read either way, and it doesn't really change the truth of the text. But what is the truth of the text? What does it say? It says, for God so loved the world. And how do you read that? What does the so mean in John 3.16? Let me ask you that question. Have you ever thought about that? What's the so mean? Does so mean very much? Because that's the way we normally read it in English. In other words, we would read it, for God loved the world so much that he gave his son. But that would assume that the word so there is an adverb of exaggeration. So much. 
And that's the way we normally read it in the English. But when I was in my master's program taking Greek, I had my eyes opened up to another possibility that I wanted to share there. My Greek professor was Dr. Steve Stanley. He's the pastor at Shoals Community Church in Hillsboro, Oregon. And I had him in my basic Greek class, and we were learning the basics of the language. And he got to John 3.16, and he asked the same question, what's so mean in John 3.16? And my answer was very much. But he suggested that the Greek word for so is actually an adverb of manner. So in my Bible program, if I just do my little right mouse click in Logos Bible software, and I look at that Greek word, it says thus, or in this way, so. That's how you should translate it, in this way. In other words, it's not an adverb of exaggeration so much, but it's an adverb of manner. We use the word so this way in the English language. And so as we read this verse, for God so loved the world, it might be properly read, for God in this way loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In what way did God love the world is the question. And to get the answer to that question, you have to go back to the previous two verses. Those of you who have not read John 3, 14 through 16 as one literary unit in the past, after this podcast, you will not be able to read it any other way. Because John 3.14 gives us the answer to in what way did God love the world. 14 says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what does that have to do with anything? Well, invite you to just flip back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21, and you'll find it in verses 5 through 9. And it just suggests people spoke out against Moses and against God, and they complained to him, and with the result that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of them died. And the people came to Moses, and they repented. They said, we've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord against you. And please go intercede with the Lord on our behalf. Get these serpents out of here. So Moses intercedes for the people and he goes before the Lord and here's the Lord's response. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that anyone who is bitten and he looks at the statue, he will live. Verse nine, and Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, a pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And that's the end of the story. And that's the context that the book of John gives us to explain in what manner God loved the world. When Israel found themselves in a situation where people were dying and they had no cure, God gave them a remedy for their situation of death. And he said, put something up on a pole and anybody that looks to that with the faith that God can save them, will be saved. And the book of John tells us, for God in that way didn't just love Israel, he put his only begotten son up on a pole, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When I teach this passage in my Bible survey classes, I love demonstrating exactly in which way the people in the Old Testament were saved from their bites. 
I move the tables out of the way. I bring the 1980s toy called the snake that you can turn and make into different shapes. And I make it look like a snake. And I pretend like it bites me on the leg. And I fall down on the ground. And the kids don't really know what to think at first. And I lay there for a while. But then I ask the question, what kind of a faith does it take to look at a snake? Having heard Moses' words, all you've got to do, God told me what to do. All you've got to do is look in faith up at the snake. What kind of effort does it take? And then I, I stand up so everybody can see me in my class. And I have my head looking down towards the ground. And I just barely turn my head a little to the right. And I gaze up with my eyes. It's, it's almost imperceivable unless you knew what I was doing. I just turn my head to the right and I look up and I glance. And I say, that's all it takes is a glance of faith. And it's that story that is attached to Jesus' work on the cross. So I would just ask you, what kind of faith does it take? What kind of situations do you find yourself in that has your head down towards the ground? What would it take just to turn your head just a little to the right and glance up? It's not much. And it's the beautiful message of John 3 the story of Nicodemus, and the ministry of Jesus. I'd like to remind you that at RethinkingScripture.com, there's a complete study of the book of John, available and ready for use. Well, that's the end of our look at Nicodemus in John chapter 3, but we're not done with the chapter yet. We've got a trifecta, a third episode on the last few verses of John chapter 3. We're going to dive into those and see how they connect with the Old Testament. We're going to encourage you to rethink Scripture in ways you've never considered it before. And I invite you back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Mm -hmm.